Yes, I'd like to just begin by uh, welcoming those watching online right now from coast to coast and across the fruited plains. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God should put it on your heart to give to the church, um, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. With that, why, why don't we just pray right now together? Jesus, we love you um, because you first loved us. I pray that I would sink in. I pray that hit home. We, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Lord, we thank you for all the good and kind gifts that you give to us. Uh, Tuesday is Independence Day here in this country, and um, we celebrate, certainly, our, our citizenship, and yet, as Christians, we, we know that we have dual citizenship, that we are kingdom citizens, that this place is not our home, um, sometimes we, we think it is our permanent home. Sometimes we love it too much. Um, and so, Lord, while we celebrate um, the freedoms that we have and uh, the kindness that is uh, living here in this country, we also, Lord, we, we celebrate what you've done for us in making us a part of your eternal kingdom. Lord, we think of uh, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guards, those serving at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. We pray for their salvation because... So many of those guys, they don't, they don't know you, Lord. They don't love you. They don't walk with you. They don't obey you. For the president, I pray that you give him wisdom. I pray a, a special grace upon his life. I pray that you'd protect his health. I pray that you'd protect his mental faculties. Uh, Lord, I also pray that you'd help him make good, wise decisions. And Lord, when he makes wicked decisions, I pray that you'd convict him, Lord. And Lord, I, I think of the persecuted church, Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian, or Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran because he's a Christian, or Pastor Wang or John imprisoned in China, Lord, for the Christians in North Korea, and Afghanistan, and Somalia and Eritrea and the South Sudan, just to mention a few, Lord. We remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Please, God, help them. And please help us not to forget about them, not to forget to pray for them. And today, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit, Lord. I pray that we would all have ears to hear. Protect me from error. Protect me from making a mistake. Protect me from saying something that you don't want me to say. And Lord, if, if there is something that you want me to say that maybe I have zero idea what that is, because I haven't planned for it or anything, I, I pray that you'd give me a word today. We want to hear from you, Jesus. Help us now. Help us. Help us to concentrate. Help us to listen well. Encourage our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Part 10. Part 10. Part 10. Of our journey through the gospel, according to John we are in John chapter 3, verse 22, and this is where we're picking up today. It's coming on the heels of that nighttime meetup between the religious leader Nicodemus and Jesus. So, so this is kind of like next day, later on that day, week, whatever. This is that kind of transitional, pivotal point. And so it says in John chapter 3, verse 22, after this... Okay, the Nicodemus episode. And Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained with them there and was baptizing. 
So Jesus leaves the larger urban areas, you might say, and he now goes into the rural areas of Judea. And it says in verse 22, it says, and he was baptizing. See that? Baptizing? Now, you probably expect to hear that Jesus was baptizing people, except you shouldn't. Because it's actually only in John's gospel where there's any mention of Jesus doing baptisms. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the synoptic gospels, zero mention of him ever doing any baptisms. In fact, when we get to John chapter 4, 2, it's going to clarify he's not actually the one doing the baptisms. Rather, he's leaving that to his disciples. But that's the setting right now. And verse 23 says, John, now this is John the Baptist, not John the Evangelist who's writing the story, but John, John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Selim because water was plentiful there. Water was plentiful. So like that little baptismal right there, they wouldn't have been able to use that in, in their day and age because it wasn't plentiful enough, okay? The idea of baptism in and of itself is going completely under the water and coming up, which is why you kind of need water to be plentiful if you're going to make it happen. And so water's plentiful there. They're doing baptisms. People were coming and being baptized. That's great. Verse 23 specifically wants us to know that the baptism ministry of both John the Baptist and Jesus were overlapping. And you say, well, so? Well, we're going to see in just a moment. That's not an insignificant detail that both their baptismal ministries were overlapping. For verse, verse 24 says, for John, once again, John the Baptist, had not yet been put in prison. You read verse 24, and it might sound like John the Evangelist is stating the obvious about John the Baptist. After all, how could John the Baptist be doing baptisms if he was incarcerated, right? If you're incarcerated, you can't be doing baptisms. So clearly he's not in prison so I mentioned the detail in verse 24. And to understand the significance of verse 24, you have to remember that in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels from the Greek word meaning to see together, they all adopt the stance of Mark 1.14, which Mark 1.14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, that's in the north, proclaiming the gospel of God. That's the position that the other three gospels take, and they do so without reporting any earlier ministry south in Judea. In other words, in the other gospels, Jesus doesn't kick off his ministry until John the Baptist is arrested, and John the evangelist who's writing this, he, he knows that. He knows that. That's why he's saying it, because he doesn't want to potentially damage his credibility for failing to explain the apparent discrepancy between his gospel and the other three synoptic gospels. So what he does here is he puts this disclaimer in right here in parentheses in verse 24, so no one says, well, hold on a second. In the other three gospels, Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee after John the Baptist is in prison. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want any type of confusion. So what's happening here is that it isn't reported in the three Gospels, this overlapping ministry that occurs prior to Jesus' ministry in Galilee in the north. And this sets us up for the heartbeat of the story, verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan, that, that Jesus fellow, 
to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So verse 25 says there is this dispute over purification. That's all we're told. In fact, it's not actually going to be described or even discussed beyond this mention of it. And when John's disciples come to John with the issue, I don't know if you noticed, it doesn't even sound like it's a purification issue. So, like, what's, what's the problem? And Piper puts forward a possible theory in which a Jewish man says to John's disciples, Look, John, you're baptizing lots of people. It looks kind of like a bath or a purification, but more and more people are leaving your movement and they're going over to that other fella, that, that Jesus guy. So, so what's the deal with his baptism and, and your baptism? Does his work and, and yours doesn't? Does his really make people pure and, and yours somehow fails to do that? See, whatever the initial conversation was regarding purification, it seems that it wasn't even the main issue because it's never actually referred to again in the text. And for that reason, the debate with the Jew in verse 25 is going to kick off this looming concern about the durability of John the Baptist's ministry. In other words, if Jesus' ministry keeps growing at the current pace, it might put some people out of a job. And notice what his disciple says. All are going to him. Now, are they really all going to him? No, negative, they're not. This is an exaggeration. It's them being alarmed, but not everyone is going. John the Baptist is still attracting considerable crowds. We just read that in verse 23, even if maybe they are a little smaller compared to those going to Jesus. But what this boils down to could be said in one word. Resentment. Resentment. They resent Jesus and his ministry. They are jealous that he's attracting more people. Here's the bottom line for anyone doing ministry, which should be in our minds, every single one of us. Like, if we're Christians and we want to obey Jesus, that's, that's how we ought to think about it. We should all have that mindset that I'm doing ministry. And I don't know if you do. I, I didn't. Like growing up, you think, who are the people that do ministry? The pastor, the worship leader. No, as Christians, we all are doing ministry. We should be at least. Like if God saved us and he's given us spiritual gifts, our spiritual gifts are mainly for the building up of the church, for the glory of God and the joy of all men. But bottom line, ministry requires, what's that word? Humility. It requires humility. And when there is a, a lack of humility, what occurs with the disciples of John the Baptist, it begins to occur with us too sometimes. And sometimes it, it starts off kind of small. We start to get a little nitpicky. We start to get a, a little irritated at certain things that really aren't that big of a deal. Or we start to get jealous of someone else's success in ministry or in business or in relationships and instead of like like being happy for them celebrating with them as Romans 12 15 would tell us to right rejoice with those who rejoice we start to criticize we start to tear them down and so as verse 27 says John answered here's what the Baptist said a person cannot receive even 
one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's answer is this, guys, that the reason people are leaving me and going to Jesus is because of God. God has given the people Jesus. God is the reason this is happening, and if God is the reason this is happening, then this is a really good thing. It's it's a good thing. You should see it that way. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says, I've always made it super clear that this was never about me. I've always made it super clear who it was actually about. So I don't know why you guys are acting all surprised right now. This isn't, oh, by the way, pretend humility. This is just John the Baptist reminding his followers of the things they have forgotten. He's told them before, but now as they experience it in real time, it's kind of shocking to them. It's upsetting to them as they see it play out. And for John the Baptist, his response here in verse 28, it isn't just about humility. It's also about contentment. And contentment, that's the antidote to this type of fear, resentment, and jealousy. So like, if you're here and you're single and you resent your married friends, godly contentment's what you need. Or if you're here, and, you mar- and you're married, and you resent your single friends, counseling's what you need. But seriously, this is what it boils down to. Like, I, I gotta think, if you're here today, and you're watching, or you're listening, online, maybe you're in a season of life or work or relationships or the lack thereof, remember that God's in control and the best place to be is content with where he has you. And that's, that's where John the Baptist is and that's what he's reminding his disciples of. Verse 29. Verse 29. He says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The friend of the bridegroom would have been something similar to a best man in that day and age. Have any of you guys been a best man before? Okay, there's some veterans in here. I see it, yeah. I got it. And in that culture as well as in our day and age, it would have been unthinkable for the best man to hijack the wedding or to attempt to steal the bride for himself. Okay, best men don't do that. They're not supposed to. It's highly discouraged in any culture, okay, including this one. But, but rather as um, the friend, as the, as the best man, John the Baptist would have found his greatest joy in, in, in just getting to watch it happen getting to watch the ceremony proceed. And, and even in today's culture, you know that when a wedding takes place, the, the focal point of the wedding is on the bride and groom. That's not a controversial statement. That's just how it is. That's how it's been throughout most of human civilization. And yet, I can recall a story that honestly sounded more like an episode of Impractical Jokers than real life. My friends officiating this wedding, and you know, at weddings... Sometimes they serve alcohol, sometimes they don't serve alcohol, and sometimes when they do serve alcohol, they have to make a decision, well, 
How much alcohol do we serve? How long do we serve it for? When do we start serving? Do we have an open bar? Do we do a, a two-drink minimum? That's how we do it in the army. And at this particular wedding that my friend officiated, the plan was there would be an open bar the whole wedding, and actually we'd, we'd open it up two hours before the wedding even started, which proved actually, interestingly enough, to be the worst idea in the history of ever. And so my friend's there, and he's officiating this wedding. And um, there he is while he's administering the vows. Do you, Joe, take you, Diana, you know, and they're, they're standing there like this, holding each other's hands, to be your lawfully wedded wife. And one of the groomsmen was so toast. I mean, this guy was, this guy was smashed, plastered, whatever the lingo is. Uh, he had had way too many. He didn't know, like, what time it is. He didn't know what day of the week it was. He didn't know what planet he was on. And while this is happening, he's over here. He's like, hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. Pastor, hang on. I go out and make a toast. Can I make a toast? I, got, I want to say something about the bride and the groom. This is such a beautiful day. This is all happening. Literally hijacks the whole wedding. Everyone is like, what are you doing? The groomsmen are like trying to grab him. He doesn't want to be grabbed. He doesn't want to return the microphone until he's done with his toast. And they have to subdue him on the ground, finally pull the microphone from him, hand it to the pastor, and then the other groomsmen have to take him down the center aisle and out. So the rest of the wedding, there's like no groomsmen there. The Baptist is here, and he's like, I'm not here to crash the wedding. I know my job. My job is a support role. And once the bridegroom gets married to the bride, man, my job's done. He's not like, sweet, we're married. Now the three of us can go on a honeymoon. Awesome, man. That's, that's not what the Baptist is about. And so as Jesus gets more popular, as upsetting as it may have been to some of John's disciples, for John, this is great news because there, there is God's plan in this. And this is the role that he's supposed to play. This is the role of the friend of the bridegroom. Christians, this is humility. This is godly contentment. And John the Baptist is the humble servant and friend of the groom. It's not about him. It's not about his specific ministry. Just like this isn't Joe's ministry. This is Jesus's. This isn't Joe's church. This is Christ's church. That's got to be our perspective. We should be happy and thrilled when we see the gospel that is being advanced. Not overly critical, not resentful. We should be happy when we see Jesus saving people and making more and more people part of his blood-bought bride. And here's what I found interesting about John 3.29. And that is how he mentions hearing the bridegroom's voice. Did you catch that? Like, why not just say the bridegroom? Because we all know who he's talking about. Why mention his voice? And I think the reason that he makes the specific mention of his voice is because in hearing his voice, that means he's actually there. It means he's arrived. He's present. And this is wonderful because 
The bridegroom's voice has huge implications throughout Scripture. For instance, the sheep, they hear his voice and they follow him. His voice leads them to safety. His voice sets the captives free. His voice commands the wind and the waves. His voice raises the dead. His voice gives hope to the nations. And John the Baptist is not the slightest bit bummed out or jealous or resentful. He's glad the bridegroom's actually there. The king has arrived. And so... If you're hearing this news and it doesn't excite you, if you're hearing the voice of Jesus and that doesn't delight you, you should have a real cause for concern. And consider this a dire warning asking the question, do I really care about the bridegroom? And do I really know Jesus in a saving way? And so verse 30 says this, He must increase... He must increase. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Now remember, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to see Jesus, and Nicodemus is absolutely baffled by the idea that someone has to be born again. It's this crazy impossibility. Remember that? Now, Contrast his reaction with John the Baptist's reaction, who says of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, John the Baptist sees how Jesus is attracting more and more attention, and he loves it. His disciples are concerned, but he's not. He's thrilled. That was his reaction, but that was not the response of Nicodemus. And there are many today who find John the Baptist's response very odd. You see, to most people today, they don't respond the way the Baptist does. They respond the way Nicodemus does. They see Jesus and that he demands how we obey and love him more than anyone else. And they say, Nicodemus, how can these things be? Just as he said it. How can Jesus say this? How can Jesus ask this? That's way too much for him to ask. And like most of the world, they resent Jesus. They resent Christians and the Bible who, like John the Baptist, affirm this central truth that Jesus must increase They resent Christians who make it all about Jesus because at the heart of the problem is their desire to make it all about them. And so verse 31 and 32 says this, He who comes from above is above all. Well, that's Jesus, right? He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's John the Baptist. He who comes from heaven is above all. That's Jesus. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And yet no one receives his testimony. Uh, Here's the point. Every single person falls into this category. Every single person is of the earth except one person, except Jesus. And this is why Jesus, who is not of this earth, must become greater. And why we must believe and obey him. And yet he says ever so pessimistically, No one does. No one receives his testimony. He's repeating chapter 3, verse 11 with Nicodemus by saying, yeah, no one listens to him. And, And yet we know the very next verse will tell us some actually do listen to him. So if some actually do listen, why would he say that no one does when some do in fact do? And I think the way that we harmonize him saying that no one listens that no one receives his testimony here in verse 32, and then in verse 33 that implies that some do, is by going back to the prologue of the chapter. So if you would indulge me, we'll go back to chapter 1. Chris has that. We'll put that on the screen. Chapter 112. 
This is how we're going to harmonize verse 32 and 33. Here's what verse 12 says. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And he's talking about the new birth right here. In verse 12, which involves receiving the testimony of Christ. You want to be part of that new birth? You want to be part of God's kingdom, of his children? You need to receive him. You need to believe in him. And then he can sign off on your form and say, boom, you're in. That's how it is. That's how I understand it. Until you read the very next verse. These people who received, believed in the name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he explains a little bit more in detail, verse 13, who were not born of blood. And that's a big deal for him to say this because this is a group of individuals, of Jews, who thought because Abraham was their great-grandpappy, because he was their great-grandfather, that automatically meant God was going to look favorably on them. And he says, nope, it doesn't work like that. You don't get an automatic favorable like, like of, of God looking down on you. And then he specifies, oh, by the way, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Whoa. <laughs> nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God but isn't it my own will and cognitive understanding that's the ultimate reason I'm a Christian? I did, the belie- I did the believing, I did the receiving. That's the ultimate reason I'm a Christian. Isn't it me making that decision to believe the reason, the ultimate reason I get to be the children? And the answer is no. So how do you say that, Joe? I, I didn't. Uh, he did. John did. And that, I think, is how we harmonize verse 32 and 33, in which he says, no one listens. And in the next verse, he says, yes, some people do listen. The explanation is, no one can effectively listen apart from God giving him ears to hear. God brings this about. God does it. God causes it. It's all about God. It's all about God. It's all for God. For no one would ever listen to him if it wasn't for God's initiating kindness toward us to even give us the ears to hear in the first place. There's people every day, right? Some people believe, some people don't. They can hear the exact same message. Like I could have, a, a non, I could have two non-Christians right here today hearing this message. One believes, one doesn't. They heard the same thing. Why does the one not believe? You say, because they reject it. Why? Why would they reject it and they not reject it? And then it goes, takes you down a rabbit hole. Well, maybe they're smarter, or maybe they had more of a biblical understanding to begin with, or, or maybe this or this. And every single explanation you give then takes you further down the rabbit hole when the answer's staring you in the face, and the answer is, God! God did it! If you're here today and you're a Christian, a miracle's taken place in your life! A miracle has taken place in your life that you have ears to hear. That when Jesus speaks, you actually listen. And so, very pessimistically in verse 32, no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, and yet whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. One's personal seal in the first century, it would signify authentication. It's real, it's true, it's authentic, it can be trusted, you can take it to the bank. That's what he's saying, that's the reference to the seal. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He utters the words of God. What he is saying here is that when Jesus speaks, when Jesus speaks, he says what God says. And furthermore, because this is true, because he speaks the words of God, 
if you don't believe him, if, if you don't believe Jesus, if you ignore his words, it's not just rude or insulting. It's actually much worse than that. The Bible actually tells us that the person who rejects God, who doesn't believe Jesus, is by default calling him a liar. 1 John 5.10. Because sometimes we can dismiss things. We can be very dismissive people. Oh, yeah, I I didn't really believe that, right? No. No, if you don't believe Jesus, you're calling him a liar. That's what you're doing according to 1 John 5.10. And and so in all of this, God gives the Spirit without measure. You say, well, that's an interesting phrase. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a difference between the way the Son of God, Jesus, receives the Spirit of God and the way that we receive the Spirit. And the difference being is that he receives it without measure. For example, throughout redemptive history, God would speak and he would send different messengers and prophets. And when these occurrences would take place, well, they would receive a certain measure of the spirit that was required in order to accomplish the task that God had given to them. But for Jesus, God gives him the spirit with zero limitations on it. And the reason he does, as verse 35 explains, the father loves the son. The father loves the son. He loves the son and has given him all things into his hand. It is because of this reason that he does this, that he gives the spirit without measure. So recap, because there's like links in a chain, building blocks. We recap from verse 33 when God gives us ears to truly hear the testimony of Jesus and we believe and we set our seal on his words and we testify that his words are true, that they can be trusted and we know this because God sent his son and when we hear the son speak, we're actually hearing God speak. Therefore, as verse 36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not Obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here's what I find very interesting about verse 36. What I find interesting about verse 36 is not that he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, because you'd expect him to say that. you expect him to say, whoever believes in Jesus, they get to have eternal life. Okay, we get that. And if that's true, which it is, we'd probably expect him to say in the very next sequence, in the very next line, well, whoever doesn't believe, well, they won't have eternal life. That's what we would expect him to say. That's why this is so interesting. Because he doesn't say that. That's why I circled right here in my Bible the word believe, and I drew a line down to its parallel, which is not they don't believe, it's they don't obey. That's why this is interesting. Verse 36 says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Very scary. That's the parallel statement to the belief equals life statement that precedes it. In other words, it's a much bigger deal than simply not believing it's a much bigger deal than people realize. Despite the efforts of non-Christians who love to downplay what's happening here. See, non-Christians, they love to insult God's character and make it seem like God's being unfair. And they'll even say things like, 
God's going to send me to hell because I don't believe in some fairy tale. Like, I don't believe in Jesus. See, the truth is it's a much bigger deal than simply not believing. What many people fail to understand when it comes to God's wrath is that it's not some mean or spiteful form of retribution, but rather it's a good and just response from a perfect and righteous God who, oh, by the way, who comes into this world that he has made, that he has created, that he owns, only to find the people there, they want nothing to do with him, only to find the people there, oppose him at every opportunity. His creation has, according to John 3.36, disobeyed him, have formed a coup. They've betrayed him, are in open hostility and rebellion against him. So when someone says, how could God pour his wrath on me because I don't believe in some fairy tale? The better question is, how could he pour it out on his only son on your behalf, given all your crap and garbage and treason against the king. See, to be a Christian means to be saved. And you say, well, saved from who? And the answer is saved from God. If you're a Christian, you're saved from God. You need to understand that very clearly. You need to understand that there are only two choices before us, before anyone, and that is obedience or disobedience, submission or defiance, fealty or rebellion, life or death. Everyone is commanded by God to bow the knee and to surrender to the king. And what is amazing is that he could easily have us all executed and put to death for our rebellion and treason. And yet for those who surrender... He lets us live. And more than that, he adopts us as children to be part of his family? Like, when have you ever seen that play out in world history? You you betray the king? They execute everybody. They don't adopt you. They don't make you part of his adopted sons and daughters. You say, what is that? That's just Jesus doing his thing. That's just amazing grace. And I pray that you would feel that today. If you're a Christian, you're hearing what I'm saying, man, a miracle's taking place. And it should matter to us. It should mean something to us. And so as I pray... I'd invite you to pray with me. We give great thanks to you, God, for your amazing grace, for your amazing love. (laughs) We, We were in open rebellion, hostility. We formed a coup. We tried to overthrow you. We committed high treason, and instead of executing us on the spot, Lord, you poured out just common grace on the whole planet. And more than that, Electing love, adopting love to make us part of your family. It truly is amazing grace. And I pray that we would feel the magnitude of this passage. As John the Evangelist recounts these details for us, we love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.